2: Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine weekly podcast. I'm Rob Attar, Deputy Editor of the magazine. This is the second of our October 2011 editions. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or you can follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. Coming up in this episode, we have a very special offer for podcast listeners. Plus...
4: It's not an honour to be in the dictionary. It's not a mark of recognition. It is a record of all aspects of the British past.
2: That was Philip Carter talking about the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography.
3: The prehistoric past lies deeply embedded in the uh, medieval past. And we can assume, or we can perhaps suggest, that long, deep continuity will continue into the 21st century.
2: And that was Peter Aykroyd discussing his new book on the history of England. Our first interview this week is with Philip Carter, publication editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Containing biographies of over 57,000 individuals who have shaped the course of British history, the Oxford DNB is an invaluable resource for historians, students and indeed anyone with an interest in Britain's past. Every year, new lives are added to the DNB often grouped together around a particular theme. The latest updates include 30 architects, whose creations range from the Globe Theatre to the Post Office Tower. I spoke to Philip about some of the new additions, and to gain an insight into the workings of this gigantic historical undertaking. So, Philip, if I could just ask you first whether you could give us a bit of background about the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography.
4: Yes, the Dictionary of National Biography is, in effect, the national record of British history. It's interested and looks at people who've shaped all aspects of British history uh, and covers the period from the 4th century BC through to the first years of the 21st century. Uh, The dictionary currently includes uh, just over 57,800 people, And what we try to do with the dictionary is to offer concise and informative biographies which provide the life story of an individual, assess their career, uh, describe their character and uh, consider their legacy. Uh, And we try to provide concise and readable starting points, if you like, on uh, figures who've shaped all aspects of British history. And we're really interested in um, every, every walk of the national past.
2: And how can people access this?
4: Well, it's available online. It was first published in 2004 in print at sixty in sixty volumes, uh, but also online. And since 2004, we've been continuing to update and extend the online edition. Uh, we published three updates every year, every January, May, and September. And because it's online, it's available through most of the uh, UK public library uh, system. And because it's available online. It's also possible to uh, gain access remotely, which means that you can uh, log on. If you're a member of a a UK public library, you can log on uh, from home or anywhere at any time um, and access the complete 57,000 biographies.
2: So essentially anybody in the country who... Who's a member of any library can access it for free, really?
4: Absolutely, yes, and it makes it it's very good for us because it makes it a national. It's the national record, and it makes it, it the national resource. Um, you can be sitting at home at eight o'clock in the evening, wanting to find out about someone, someone you see on television, something you've read about, and you can just use your library card as your personal login and go direct to the uh, to the dictionary uh, site and then look up an individual.
2: And we're talking today because a group of architects have just been added to the ODMB. And I suppose something I'd like to ask you is how are people chosen to be added on?
4: Well, the first criteria for inclusion is that everyone has to be deceased. We don't include any living people. Um, and at the moment, we include people who uh, died in or before the year 2007. The policy for inclusion is very wide ranging. The definition of the dictionary is national biography, and it was chosen uh, very clearly, because it was an opportunity to uh, encompass all of British life. So, it's not a, an honour to be in the dictionary. It's not a mark of recognition. It is a record of all aspects of the British past, and I. Our- the selection process uh, differs in two ways. For the more recently deceased people, uh, those that died in the uh, first years of the 21st century, we often draw on published records uh, through obituaries in newspapers and so on, and we take a very long, a large number of uh, individuals, about 1,000, who appear in obituaries throughout a particular calendar year, and then assess them with external experts and decide which of those people uh, will go into the diction. We publish about uh, 200 biographies for each year, in the 21st century uh, but for earlier periods uh, the updates also cover all aspects of, of British uh, history from the Roma period through to the late 20th century and there what we do is we tend to gather suggestions from readers uh, we do a lot of work uh, in-house as a team of uh, academic historians at the University of Oxford who uh, keep in touch with what's going on in um, current scholarship uh, what's who's been talked about often uh, we're including now people who are uh, probably quite well known as, uh, as names, but about whom very little is known in terms of their biography. So often our selection process now is, um, is in step with new discoveries, and it's very much a process of recreating a biography, certainly for people in earlier periods, um, where we want to include, um, we include new subjects in the dictionary.
2: And so you, sometimes you're adding people now that, that have died quite a long time ago. Why might they have missed out on the original group that was done in 2004?
4: Sometimes there were gaps in the 2004 edition that we knew about and we wanted to address when we were able to update the dictionary online from 2005. But often, invariably, it's, um, it's either new areas of historical research which are now coming into fruition that weren't sufficiently developed before 2004. And an example of this would be, say, uh, the history of policing. We recently published a set of 40 biographies of people that uh, shaped the history of British uh, policing in the 19th, 20th century. A lot of these people are perhaps known by name or perhaps for a particular action that they did, but their biographies aren't uh, particularly well known. And it's really an example of a social and cultural historical subject that is for the first time becoming sufficiently well documented uh, that allows us to include them uh, in the dictionary. And then there are individual cases uh, where we again may know about an individual uh, for something that he or she did but it's only now that historians are uh, focusing on a complete life and an example of that would be somebody we put in uh, earlier this year, a woman called Gwyneth Bebb who was a a trainee uh, lawyer who took the Law Society to court in 1914 in an attempt to win the right to, um, to sit the exams to become a barrister. Uh, the case is very well known, but very little was known about Gwyneth Bebb until uh, an academic contacted us and said that she had done some research on her and discovered that although her case failed, she died uh, just before she was about to sit the exams after the, the, uh, the ruling had been changed. So in effect, she, her, her early death meant that she disappeared from the historical record, although her name as an individual was quite well known and it's it's an example like that is a, is a is a good instance of the often the 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 recovery of biographies that we're doing and the recovery of interesting lives uh, that is quite a lot of our work now at the dictionary
2: do you ever have people coming along to you that trying to get their ancestors put into the ODMB?
4: Yes, we do. Um, I mean, the, the, the readership is very broad. Uh, we're very keen that the dictionary is a national resource. And we do get a number of suggestions from readers, um, many of which are extremely helpful indeed. We don't often act uh, straight away on those. We, what we tend to do is to gather them into sets. So it's people by a particular profession or a particular pastime or a particular activity so that we can assess uh, new candidates um, side by side. And we draw on um, external experts uh, to us on the noteworthiness of a collection of, of people. But the other area that's um, particularly noteworthy, uh, remarkable um, since 2005 when we've been um, available online, is that the number of people who will submit uh, new information to existing biographies. We're all benefiting from the availability of uh, wonderful online resources now, such as the census or uh, searchable um, general register, office records, uh, probates and so on. Um, and a lot of people are doing family research uh, on their ancestors, find that they have an entry in the dictionary um, and then they're submitting new pieces of, of research which allows us to amplify the um, the existing biography.
2: And so when somebody's been chosen, what, what's the process for producing a biography for them?
4: Well most of the uh, biographies that we publish are commissioned to external um, experts and we uh, are in the fortunate position of being able to contact people worldwide to uh, write on individuals. And often we're contacting people who spent a career working in a particular academic field, uh, whether it's history or literature or art or science. And then the biography will be written uh, and sent back to deliver to us. There's a The team of academic e- editors in Oxford will then... Ah, uh, review it and send it to uh, external reviewers. Uh, this invariably leads to a second round of um, revisions by the author because either uh, we want to amplify particular aspects of the life or we you know we want to address questions of balance and and judgment and so on. And then it will come back to the editors in Oxford who will um, check all the facts, uh, will supplement the uh, biographies with a wide range of core elements we put into all the all the works. So, for example, we will include birth uh, records, uh, marriage, death certificates, places of education, family details and so on, which give a structure to the uh, biography, all of which now are much more easily available through uh, online resources. And then it will be read again by um, advisors, And if it's acceptable at that point, it goes to a general editor to be read and approved. And then all being well, it goes on to the um, into the general production cycle for um, any publication. And it usually takes about 18 months from an idea for a set of biographies such as the architects to come together to gather together about 30 or forty individuals uh, to assess them to commission them to uh, and then to review them and then to publish them
2: so it sounds like a really thorough process then that goes along for each one
4: it is I mean I, I mean what, what we are doing at the dictionary is providing uh, a record that we hope will stand for the next uh 30 40 50 years uh scholars in the future readers in the future family historians in the future will hopefully look back on biographies that we're publishing now and be able to say well that gives me a rounded balanced factually accurate uh statement on this individual one thing we also provide is is uh guides and to uh, where you can do your own research based on the availability of archives relating to a person or to uh, likenesses relating to a person. We do have a responsibility to be um, as thorough as we can so that they, the, the individual biographies stand the test of time.
2: And um, so we're talking now because these new architects have been added to the list. Could you perhaps tell us about a couple of the architects that are going to be featured?
4: Yes, we're, we, we published... Um, in uh, September, a set of 30 uh, architects. They're they're really people that were active in the late 19th uh, and 20th century. And what we wanted to do was to uh, really choose biographies that reflected the breadth um of the development of architecture, um both in terms of styles of, of building and design, but also new types of building. So we have individuals who are very active in the post-war period in the development of high-rise building, use of new materials like concretes. We've got a man called Eugene Rosenberg, who was the pioneer of the White Tile School of Design, uh, which uh, became a uh, a shorthand to describe modern campus universities. So we're interested in general themes within architecture, but we also were c- conscious that we should include uh, figures who were responsible for some landmark buildings. And two of the most prominent uh, individuals here were uh, men, uh, men called James uh, Maxwell and Charles Chuke, who were the designers and architects for the Blackpool Tower, which is uh, recently reopened after a, a period of renovation which is obviously one of the most famous buildings in Britain. And we thought it was uh, fitting that we included a biography on these individuals. And with Maxwell and Tuke, it was a good example of uh, people had heard about them People obviously knew about their work, but there wasn't until we published the biography, um, a detailed account of their life. And we have a wonderful article by an architectural historian called Lynn Pearson, who's done a great deal of research into their lives, um, which sets the, their, their most famous work, Blackpool Tower, in context. But the interesting thing about Maxwell and Duke was that they didn't just build the Blackpool Tower. Uh, They also went on, well, their their, their company went on, uh, Maxwell's son in particular, went on to design something called the New Brighton Tower, which was even taller than the Blackpool Tower, um, became then the second tallest building in the world, which came a decade after the Blackpool Tower uh, in the 1890s. But unlike Blackpool, which became a sort of national icon, uh, the New Brighton Tower fell into uh, disrepair in the First World War and was dismantled um, in 1919.
2: And do we, do we know why that one was so much less popular than the Blackpool
4: Tower? I don't know. Um, I mean, what what uh, one of the things that, that Lynn has uh, drawn out with the uh, Blackpool Tower is just how quickly it took off um, from 1894 when it was opened. It said that the Manchester uh, newspapers carried reports of 70,000 people queuing to go up the lift on the very first day. And so clearly the Blackpool Tower had a real... Uh, draw quite why the success of the uh of the new brighton tower was not equivalent i don't know but it, it it's a it's a it's a sort of it's an interesting story because it's a it's a, it was clearly a vast structure and it is a, if you see pictures of it it's a really remarkable building very similar to the uh, blackpool design but it's one that's almost passed out of um popular knowledge uh compared to the the national success of the blackpool uh structure
2: and um could you perhaps tell us a bit about what future plans you've got for the ODMB?
4: Yes, well, we, pub- we publish three updates every year. So our next update will be in January 2012. Um, that will include um, about 200 biographies of people that died in 2008, as we continue the process of adding into the people in the 21st century. So there'll be individuals such as uh, Harold Pinter, Arthur C. Clarke will be going into the dictionary in January. And then in May and September, we'll continue to uh, extend the dictionary's coverage across all historical periods. Uh, in May, with an eye, like most people, to the Olympics and what's going on in 2012, we're going to have a special uh, update on individuals who shape the history of London. And that will cover about 700 years of the capital's history. And um, again, we're, we're hoping to sort of recover some of the uh, individuals who are quite well known um, for what they do, but are actually don't have a biography themselves. And an example there would be a man called... Um, Henry Croft, who is the originator of the Pearly King and Queen tradition in the 1880s, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about his his work. But at the moment, we're working in the hope of being able to uh, produce a biography, the first biography on him and his contribution to that uh, well-known London uh, cultural um, cultural identity. And then, in the in the uh, longer-term future, we'll we'll continue to publish new biographies. But we're also, uh, alongside the individual lives, we're running a program to. Uh, published a series of about 400 uh, entries on groups, uh, ways in which individuals who were covered in the dictionary came together in networks and gangs and clubs and worked collaboratively. And in a way, this is, this is what online resources now can do and what the online dictionary can do that uh, print edition uh, isn't able to do Uh, which is rather than seeing people as simply an A to Z collection, you can now start to think of people in different relationships at different relationships at points of time. So people who met together to work in, in particular clubs, people who came together in reform movements, people who came together in literary movements, and so on. Um, and it makes it gives uh, new ways of thinking about people in the past, not just as individuals, but also as people who can be brought together, often for the first time. Uh, we're finding that, again, a lot of these clubs and groups and networks and associations may be well known as names, but the precise business, which is really what we're interested in, discovering who exactly was a member uh, what it did, how long it ran for, what its legacy was and so on, is much more shadowy. So we're trying to recover people in the context of their how they actually lived and worked uh, at particular points in, in the past. The broader point there is that um, the the exciting thing for us is that for the future, we will continue to benefit enormously from the availability of new online resources um, We can do now, uh, in terms of research, things that we couldn't possibly have done five years ago because of the accessibility of biographical reference sources. And so um, almost every day we get new information which allows us to extend and develop existing biographies. Uh, So it's not just a question in the future of continuing to add new people, although that remains a very important part of the work, but it's also keeping in step with new discoveries and supplementing existing biographies um, in a way which means that we... keep uh, keep in line with uh, new discoveries and new historical work um, as it comes out in the future.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting... Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.H.E.L.P. dot com/historyextra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed.
2: That was Philip Carter of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. The web address for the online edition is oxforddnb.com and members of most public libraries in the UK can log on via this homepage using their card number as their personal ID. Now, if you like what you get on this weekly podcast, you'll definitely enjoy reading the magazine. If you don't already get a copy, we'd like to offer you a chance to see what you're missing, so we're giving you an opportunity to read a free digital copy of our September 2011 issue. All you have to do is go to historyextra.com forward slash podcast copy and follow the instructions there. This free issue will only be available until 31st October 2011. Our second interview this week is with the acclaimed author Peter Aykroyd. A prolific writer of both fiction and non-fiction, Aykroyd is perhaps best known for his magnificent biography of his home city, London. His current project is a six-part history of England, the first volume of which, Foundation, has just been published by Macmillan. I caught up with Peter recently to find out a little more about his latest endeavour. What motivated you to begin writing this history of England in the first place?
3: Well, I'd written the history of London and the history of the Thames and the history of the English imagination in various previous volumes, and it just seemed to me to be a natural next step to take on the history of the country itself.
2: And... When you're writing this, what kind of an audience are you aiming it at?
3: I'm aiming, I hope, for a general interested audience. I'm not aiming for a university audience as such, nor for scholars or students as such. I want to reach as many people as I possibly can in order to reintroduce uh, the history of England to its own people.
2: So when you say reintroduce, do you feel that this has it's been lacking. Do you think people have lost a sense of their history in England?
3: That's what I hear from other people, and I, that's what I read when I, uh, about the state of English schools, although I know very little about that subject. Um, I don't think there's been an enterprise of, of this nature for some time. I can't recall when the last multi-volume History of England appeared. Um, so as far as I was concerned, it was a welcome opportunity to break new ground.
2: And so you, so you feel that there might be something to do with education, that people at school aren't learning this narrative history anymore? I,
3: I don't know. I don't know what's happening in recent years in, in English classrooms, but I know from the past that history was a neglected uh, study. But it's actually one of, which has always fascinated uh, the English people. There's always been a tradition of antiquarianism and a tradition of historical inquiry in England. And it seemed um, uh, a good idea to try and um, resume it.
2: And I suppose the question you'll probably get asked quite a lot is why you've chosen England rather than Britain.
3: The reason is that there's so much to study, so much to absorb, um, uh, that it would have been impossible for me to include the histories of England, of Scotland, and Ireland, uh, and Wales, uh, in the context of these volumes. Um, and also, I don't feel at all um, uh, defensive about concentrating upon England. It's a subject of great interest to me, and it's a subject which stands in its own right. So you do
2: feel that English history is very much a separate thing from Welsh history, Scottish history, Irish history?
3: It's not a separate thing, but it can be seen as a whole and entire in itself. Mm. Obviously the many occasions when English and Scottish history, English and Irish history intersect, and then uh, they are brought into the discussion. But on the whole, I found it wisest and best and in fact most convenient, to uh, concentrate upon the history of England itself.
2: And do you find it sort of later on in the project, in the later books, are you going to find it more difficult when you do have a united Britain to keep writing about England as a history?
3: Uh, Yes, it will become more difficult, and I've decided uh, at an early stage to include all of those matters that impinge upon English life, society, Mm -hmm. politics. And history. So, for example, in the volume uh, um, concerning James VI and James I, um, there will be more of a interested look at Scottish life.
2: But always sort of through an English perspective?
3: Yes, it will always be through an English perspective because I am English um, and uh, that's the subject about which I write most um, agreeably. So, you, do you feel then for more
2: English than British?
3: Oh yes, I don't think Britain is a a a sort of abstract uh, identity which I've never really felt much attachment to. Um, It doesn't seem to me to um, uh, reflect any proper identity, um, and it's just a figment of the historical imagination.
2: So you think that even after, say, three hundred years of. There being a Britain, you still think it hasn't really worked successfully in terms of creating a nation?
3: Oh, absolutely not. I don't see that there is any nation of Britain uh, that has emerged in in the last two or three centuries. And the fact that Scotland itself now seems to perhaps to be on the brink of uh, seceding would suggest that uh, it was never an option in anybody's eyes.
2: So I suppose with that going on, this might be quite a timely time to write something about the history of England.
3: Well, I I suppose so. I never thought of it in those terms, but um, it's clear that England as a nation-state is once more taking centre stage in a way it declined to do so, even in the most recent past.
2: Um, And I know that this is a six-volume history of England that you're writing. So you've gone quite a long way in the first volume, right up to, I think, the death of Henry VII. That's right. So why have you tried to concentrate such a large sort of number of years in all-in-one volume?
3: Well, I don't know. That's the way it just came to me. I, I, the idea for it, or the inspiration, whatever you want to call, call it, came very suddenly and uh, uh, completely to me. I didn't actually have to think about it. And I just wrote down on a piece of paper the six subjects. Um, and that's how the enterprise took shape. Uh, I didn't pause to reflect or consider my choice of subjects, it just, the way it came to me. And I I always find that my first instincts are normally, for me at least, the most appropriate ones.
2: And is the fact that you're, I guess, concentrating more on the later history of England, is that because you think it's more important, or is it because there's more source material available?
3: It's just the way it happened to me. It's just the way, as I said, it came to me. I I didn't pause for thought. I just uh, wrote down what seemed to me to be the most convenient and coherent outline.
2: And do you see any themes emerging in your first book? You've called it foundation. Is, is that the theme of the book? Really? The
3: theme of the book is really the continuities between the past, uh, and the associations and continuities between the various centuries which comprise the early life of England. Uh, that, for me, is the main conclusion, that the prehistoric past lies deeply embedded in the uh, medieval past. And we can assume, or we can perhaps suggest... That that content that long, deep continuity will continue into the twenty first century,
2: so there's aspects of English history even from before the Romans that you sort of see carrying on right through
3: Oh, yes, there are certain elements of English history which seem to have um an immemorial um origin, um, things like parliament, things like the county boundaries, things of that nature, agricultural practices. Um, they were all. They all persisted until well into the fifteenth century, and sixteenth century.
2: So even despite the waves of invaders, certain things sort of certain things massive. remain.
3: Yeah, and the, the waves of invaders are of, 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 of great importance in changing the direction or momentum of English history. But they didn't alter its fundamental bedrock. I don't think.
2: Do you see any of the invaders as being sort of particular importance to English history?
3: Well, I think all of them in their various ways were very important. The Romans, Saxon, Danes, Normans, uh, they all contributed something to national life and they all enriched national life. That's why I've always been in favour of immigration um, on as large a scale as possible because it always helps to enrich and deepen the life, the cultural and social life of the country.
2: And... um do you say there's any particular heroes and villains in your book?
3: No, I don't believe in heroes or villains. I just believe in, in presenting an authoritative, as far as I can make it, a portrait of the various people, the various personages who have crossed across the stage. Um, I don't apply moral judgments to them.
2: And are there any people in this first book that you see as having real importance to this period? Are there any people that really stand out for their impact?
3: Yes, a great many of them do. It would be sort of um, almost impossible to um, list certain names. There's um, Richard II, uh, Edward I, uh, Harold I. Uh, a range of kings, a range of monarchs, and a range of uh, other illustrious people have um, carried on the story. Um, so many of them, it's impossible to single out one or two.
2: Do you there's any people that have sort of been forgotten by history that you're maybe trying to rehabilitate? And...
3: Oh, the forgotten people? Well, a lot of... Uh, most of the people have actually been forgotten, if you think about it. I, I think the national memory of the period, of the medieval period, certainly is very, very weak. Um, and uh, most, of, most of the personages involved have long since... Uh, uh, declined in interest and relevance.
2: And do you think that your readers will be surprised by some of the points you make in your book?
3: I think they might be surprised by the local details. I, uh, the uh, the social life of the period, the humour of the period. There's a section on medieval jokes, for example. Uh, the broad outline would be would be more or less familiar to students of English history, but the sudden illuminations of social life and political life might be different.
2: And as a writer yourself, have you drawn much on some of the work of the very early English
3: writers? I admire them all very much. I admire the writers like Bede and Geoffrey Monmouth, um, and of later writers too, like Macaulay and Gibbon and um, uh, Bacon and Raleigh, and Morley and Milton, of course. His History of England, History of Britain. I always admire writers who are good writers rather than just good historians. although the two are, in some cases, identical. But I, I think a, a good historian is, first and foremost, a good writer. Um, and it's that kind of writing which has attracted me in the course of the book.
2: And were some of these writers influential to you earlier in your career as well?
3: Well, I remember reading Milton. I remember meeting, reading Gibbon. Um, I can't say I ever read Rank or Gardner. But the great prose stylists of the past have often or not been historians, so I read them as a matter of course.
2: And your your book ends with the reign of Henry the Seventh. So mm. do you see Henry Seventh's reign as a particularly pivotal point in English history?
3: No, not really. That's just where I thought I would end it. It just sort yeah. of came to me as a natural thing to do, um, largely because the uh, Reformation began with Henry the Eighth, or what was. Is thought to have begun with Henry VIII, and and the set, restoration, set, the Reformation settlement, ended with Elizabeth. So that those four monarchs—Henry, um, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth—seem to form a natural quartet.
2: So, for readers of your next book, they will be getting essentially focusing on the Tudors from Henry VIII. Yeah, you're getting well.
3: the, the whole of the Reformation and the, and the four Tudors. Then the third volume is concerned with rebellion, with uh, James the uh, First, Charles the First. Cromwell, Charles II, James II. The fourth volume is entitled The Revolution, and that will cover the Industrial Revolution and other matters of the 18th century. The fifth volume will be concerned with the 19th century, with Victoria and Empire, and the sixth and final volume will be concerned with the 20th and 21st centuries.
2: And do you have any idea of how long this project's going to be lasting for?
3: it take about ten years.
2: Ten years, right. Yeah. Okay. So the, the final book will be coming out, say, 2021 20, 20 or something. 20. 20, I think.
3: 2020, wow. Eight years, then so, sorry. No, nine years, yeah.
2: So this is, this is like a real major project for you then, taking
3: on? Yeah, it's one I, I've never undertaken on something on so large a scale, so it's uh, both uh, daunting and also exhilarating at the same time.
2: And um, so what kind of research are you doing? Are you, how are you going about? Sort of
3: I'm reading every means? book I can find on it and on the subjects I'm covering at, the se- at, at um, any one moment, and I'm reading as many of the magazine periodical essays as i can find on the same but and i i seem to know by instinct now when i when i'm able to stop and start writing um it's, it is just a matter of instinct because obviously like, one can't absorb all the information from all the publications but uh, there comes a point when i seem to know that i can begin the next stage
2: and do you feel that your work as a novelist make kind of gives you an instinct for making history accessible to the popular audience?
3: I hope it does, yes. I hope it brings. I can bring a dramatic sense to the scenes of the past, which allows them once more to live in the public imagination.
2: And do you think maybe the one reason why perhaps the English public aren't so aware of their history is because they might not find it as interesting as they could do?
3: Well, that may be the case. It may be that uh, academic history does not necessarily appeal to a large number. Of people And most publications today, I, I believe, written by academic historians, mm. they may not have the same appeal as the, for the general public as uh, more accessible work.
2: And so hopefully with your books you'll be able to rectify that.
3: I hope so, yeah, that's part of my aim, yeah.
2: That was Peter Aykroyd. Foundation is available now, and you can read a review of the book on our website, historyextra.com. Well, do please get in touch if you have any comments on the podcast, particularly if you have any ideas on how we can improve the programme. Email any thoughts you have to podcast at historyextra.com or you can contact us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. Well, that's it for this week. Next week we'll be talking to Sir Max Hastings about some Second World War misconceptions and we'll get the lowdown on the history of pirates. In the meantime, don't forget to read your free digital issue of BBC History magazine at historyextra.com forward slash podcast copy. See you next week.